The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. You know, people will call this Cold War II. I think it's a very dangerous analogy. To me, this has none of the attributes, none of the foundational attributes of the, the Cold War. One, doesn't have the same ideological dimension. Two, the two countries are not trying to destroy each other. Three, they're the first and second, third largest economies in the world. Um, and they're deeply, deeply intertwined. And so to me, what this is, is an asymmetric competition between two countries that are going to have to competitively coexist, um, where neither country can gain the extra edge without relying on other countries. That's Jared Cohn from Goldman Sachs talking about the new era of geopolitical tensions. The question of whether the United States and China can simultaneously compete and coexist and how companies and investors can navigate that world is the one we're tackling this week. Welcome to The Exchange, a podcast from Reuters Breaking News that explores some of the big questions in global business, finance, and economics with expert guests. I'm Peter Thalassen, the global editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from London. This week, we're looking at the growing competition between the United States and China and how that dynamic is affecting everything in the world of business. It's influencing industrial policy, it's reordering supply chains, it's diverting capital flows, and it's affecting boardroom decisions. To explore all of this, I sat down with Jared Cohn. Jared is the co-head of the Office of Applied Innovation at Goldman Sachs, and also the Wall Street firm's President of Global Affairs. So he spends a lot of time thinking about geopolitical risks and tensions and how they affect the bank's clients. But before joining Goldman last year, Jared worked at Alphabet, owner of Google, where among other things, he was advisor to its CEO and founded Jigsaw, which applies cutting-edge technology to cyber attacks, disinformation, censorship, and much more. Before that, Jared worked at the U.S. State Department, serving as close advisor to both Condoleezza Rice and Hillary Clinton. We covered a lot of ground. I hope you find the discussion as thought-provoking as I did. Jared Cohen, welcome to The Exchange. Thank you for having me. So um, there's a lot for us to talk about um, uh, in, in, in the world of geopolitics, um, in your world. Uh, and I'm curious about lots of things, but um, we're sitting here uh, sort of 72 hours after uh, the, the sort of Hamas invasion of, um, of, of Israel and, uh, and, and all the sort of events that, that kicked off. Um, obviously, this is your... This, this is kind of right in your, the center of your job. So just, I'm just curious, sort of from, a, from where you sit and, and kind of the job you have now, how do you look at this? I mean, I think what's striking for me is before this horrific terrorist attack and, you know, the subsequent, you know, additional violence that, that, that's, that's played out, I would have sort of described the current state of the world as the most unstable and uncertain geopolitical moment in the last two plus decades, at least. Um, and most of my annotation to that would have focused on parts of the world that were not the Middle East and, and North Africa. Um, and that's not been the case, you know, in the first couple decades of, um, of this century, right? And I think that we've, I kind of came of age at a time where it was all about the war on terror. It was the aftermath of 9-11. It was the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, the global threat of terror around the world, even, you know, right here in, in um, the UK and Europe, it was about the homegrown extremist threat. And I think that, you know, these horrific events are a reminder of just how complicated the geopolitical world is. And, um, you know, regions that can seem stable and like they've moved on and like they've evolved are just as susceptible to, um, 
you know, the lighting of a match that ignites, you know, um, you know, a, a kind of powder keg of, of, of tension uh, beneath the, the surface that might otherwise be obfuscated by, you know, things that, that, that you know, are, are more positive mm-hmm. stories around the, 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 the region. And, and look, even the U.S. National Security Advisor um, was caught by surprise. You know, Jake Sullivan, you know, 11 days ago said, you know, this is the quietest the Middle East has been. And you know, I forget how many years he, he, he said. And so, you know, that was the conventional wisdom. Um, the other thing that I'm struck by is, you know, you just, you have these moments just as a human being where you think, you know, it's, you know, and I, I remember thinking this when ISIS first emerged on the scene, like how, how can it be 2020 or 2019 and you have, you know, these terrorists stuck in the seventh century, you know, doing things that just seem unimaginable, you know, in, you know, this current time period. And then you sort of look at, you know, you look at what happened the other day and just the horrific disregard for, for human life. And, and again, you're reminded that this, this happens in, in 2023. Um, and, it, and it's a daunting reality that as we're all kind of grappling with geopolitics, um, it's a reminder of how multidimensional it is. It's how, uh, it's a reminder of how um, uh, unpredictable it is. It's also a, a reminder of, of just how horrific um, it can be in terms of how it manifests itself. And I think that, so that, that, that's kind of my, my, my kind of emotional react and kind of more personal reaction to it. Uh, at, at a geopolitical level, um, you know, it's, um, it, th- this happens at a very um, important inflection point or juncture in the Middle East where for, for decades, um, what I've heard from leaders in, 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 you know, countries like Saudi Arabia, UAE, Qatar, is that all they want is their economic interest to drive the geopolitics, not the other way around. And, you know, with the geopolitical center of gravity having moved from the Middle East to Washington and Beijing, um, the Middle East has been experiencing a, a bit of a, of an economic, uh, a bit of an economic renaissance. And it's just, it's, it's changed, right? You know, it, it's deregionalizing. You have each country kind of having its own individual ambitions, you know, I think that, um, you know, but this is, this is a reminder that there's no shortage of spoilers in the region, and it's much easier to destabilize than it is to, to, to stabilize. And my, my view is, um, you know, look, there, 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 there's, there's never one specific reason why something happens, but why this, why now? Um, normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel I believe represents an existential threat for the Islamic Republic of Iran and an existential threat for terrorist organizations like Hamas that as part of their charter, um, you know, include the, the, the wiping of Israel off of the map. Um, and, um, you know, and if you look at the scale of the attack, if you look at how coordinated it is, um, you know, if you look at the, you know, assumed and I believe likely connection between um, Tehran and, 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 and these attacks, you know, it to me represents a deeply coordinated and systematic effort to thwart that process. Not not not, not just thwart it, but but really, you know, kind of um, you know um, make that process you know quite difficult in the short mm. and, and, and medium term. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, so um, just zooming out a little bit, or maybe zooming in. I mean, I think I think one of the things that I'm curious about before we get into some of the sort of the the things that you touched on there is, is just to understand a little bit about, about kind of what you do now, yep. <laughs> right? Because um, 
Um, I can sort of understand that, you know, sort of that, that there were kind of things you did at the State Department and things you did at Google and stuff. And, and, I, and, we all, and obviously geopolitics is important. I think you wrote somewhere that, you know, everything is geopolitical now. Yeah. Um, but, but how does that work inside an investment bank yeah. like Goldman Sachs? How does that fit into the decision making? Look, at, at the end of the day, Goldman Sachs is a client services business, right? We have institutional clients, we have sovereign clients, we have multinational corporation clients, we have family offices and, and private wealth clients. You know, we have sort of a range, we have different sort of categories of, of, um, of clients. And if you ask them all what's been the biggest change, um, you know, kind of coming out of COVID, um, what they'll all say is they're grappling with, you know, two seismic trends that are turning their businesses upside down where they have very little agency to navigate. They'll talk about the geopolitics um, and they'll talk about the technology. And when I first started, the technological focus was technology. It was changing ways that money and value moves around the world and we're disintermediate, potentially disintermediating you know, a, a number of the incumbents. That was before we even got to generative AI, which is the most significant technology invented since the internet. So these kind of twin forces are separately and together um, you know, having the, this, this, this almost this sort of simultaneous impact on every business and, you know, in every sector, in every geography, in every type of client, in every sector and geography where they either need to figure out that, look, they, they expect Goldman Sachs to have a differentiated point of view about where all of this is going. But they also expect us as part of what we do in client services, help them figure out how to commercially navigate it. Right. And so that can be as simple in some cases as a corporation, you know, recognizing that they need to reorient their supply chain. It can be, you know, a sovereign, you know, country, you know, coming into their own, um, you know, looking for an intellectual partner to help them sort of shape their ambitions as a country and also look to us as the commercial partner to help them figure out how to do it. It can be, you know, family offices looking to, you know, figure out how to up level in a changing world. Um, so it's, in a lot of respects, this is the sweet spot of what Goldman Sachs does. It's us, you know, embracing a geopolitical seat that we actually already have. You know, we already have a, a seat at the geopolitical table just by virtue of being such a regulated institution and in all the different geographies that we talk to. What's interesting is when I left Alphabet to come to Goldman, one of my big concerns is um, how would I stay? How can I possibly stay as fresh on the technology at Goldman as I can at Google? Right. It's very, it seems very, that seems like a very obvious anxiety to have. Um, I've been able to stay not just fresher on the technology at Goldman. I would say I've been able to exponentially um, um, get greater insights into what's happening technologically and um, learn more technologically than I did even running an engineering organization within Alphabet. So why is that the case? Uh, one, I mean, we have a lot of engineers at, at at Goldman, so we do have the in-house. You know, we we have sort of some foundational expertise. But if you take generative AI, right? You know, there's sort of the way to think about it. There's there's kind of four types of characters in this generative AI play. There's the new there's the new companies that have emerged on the scene um, that you know are all engaging us as in ways that you 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 would imagine they, they they would. And if I was at Google, none of them would would you know they wouldn't talk to us in the same way. And so we get to talk to all the newcomers. We talk to all the incumbents. We understand the nuanced differences between them. We understand kind of who does what, who claims to do what. And it's just a deep understanding of the generative AI ecosystem. But the part that is less obvious and I think really interesting is generative AI is just interesting research and a toy to play with until you get into the applied side 
Um, and because everybody found out about generative AI at the same time on November 30th of, of, of last year, there was a simultaneity in terms of every business trying to figure out how to apply it to their business. So you know, we have you know, tens of thousands of clients around the world who you know, we have visibility into how they're thinking about the applied side of generative AI. So you put all that together and you know, combine it with the fact that we talk to sovereigns about their kind of national ambitions, and we just have this wide-angle lens um, that allows us to look at technology and understand it in a, different, in a different kind of way. And again, it's the same thing with geopolitics, right? Because you know, one of my sort of observations about geopolitics is you, know, um, you, know, you have economic anomalies in the market that typically are an early warning or an indication that there's something happening geopolitically, or you geopolitically see something and wonder if there's going to be economic anomalies that come with it. Um, but it's those two things together. It's the, it's the geopolitical anomalies coupled with the economic anomalies and the ability to tie them together that tells you where things are happening geopolitically. And so, you know, as a firm, we're building out a proper machinery to be able to engage with our clients on the geopolitics, to be able to, you know, um, you know, engage in real commercial activity that helps navigate um, um, the geopolitics and rides the geopolitical waves. And on the, te- on the technology side, we spend a lot of time obviously raising capital for, for, for tech companies. We spend a lot of time thinking about applying technology to our own business. Um, we're building a machinery to be able to take everything that we know and externalize it for our clients in service of what they're trying to do. But so... But but it's more fuzzy, isn't it? I mean, I think that's I think in terms of the decision making. I mean, I think if you'd been at Goldman Sachs twenty years ago, you you know you kind of go and talk to clients and you you're advising them about the cost of capital and return on capital and sort of you know there are sort of fairly well developed and sort of rigorous sort of financial frameworks and okay, ego and other things kind of play into it. But but there wasn't this sort of this kind of geopolitical overlay necessary that sort of meant that actually that investment that you were going to make stacks up financially but but actually the the geopolitics means it could be completely worthless yeah i mean so it's is is it is it possible to sort of be more sort of financially rigorous or do you just have to accept a level of sort of ambiguity in in geopolitics yeah well just in terms of the intersection between those two look i think the nexus between geopolitics technology and global markets look sometimes it's very pronounced right you know there's export controls and that has an I mean, so there are sort of concrete instances but 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 a lot of it is you know looking around the corner right so if you take the most significant driver of the geopolitical tensions right now which is the relationship between the us and china um you know Everything emanate for the most part emanates for, for, from that, and and you know it's interesting. I think a lot of what's going on here is you know, the era of hyper globalization probably ended well before COVID, but it took the trifecta of a global pandemic where countries looked inward, um, uh, a war in Ukraine, um, and these sort of escalating what was initially technology tensions between the U.S. and China, which kind of was birthed, in my opinion, with the sort of what I describe as the 5G realization, where the U.S. kind of recognized, oh, my God, we had a three-decade first mover advantage, and the asymmetric nature of this relationship means it's kind of ending in a tie after, after three decades. Um, so, you know, so all those things combined um, revealed something very interesting, which is the, the two countries that are probably the biggest winners from hyper-globalization, the U.S. and China, neither country is altogether happy with the outcome, right? So the U.S. emerged from COVID realizing that there was an 
over-dependence on China for supply chains and real questions about where diversification was possible and not possible. And the Chinese emerged from um, the chapter of hyper-globalization, looking at the extraordinary power that the U.S. has um, technologically, um, but also with its privileged position with the U.S. dollar and the sanctions on SWIFT and the, the central bank, you know, kind of sent ripple effects throughout the world about sort of the, you know, telegraphing the future of, of, of sanctions policy. And what's interesting is, you know, people will call this Cold War II. I think it's a very dangerous analogy. To me, this has none of the attributes, none of the foundational attributes of the, the Cold War. One, doesn't have the same ideological dimension. Two, the two countries are not trying to destroy each other. Three, they're the first and second, third largest economies in the world. Um, and they're deeply, deeply intertwined. And so to me, what this is, is an asymmetric competition between two countries that are going to have to competitively coexist, um, where neither country can gain the extra edge without relying on other countries. Um, and so um, it, it's just, you know, to me that if, if I talk, you know, as I'm sort of talking to all of our clients, it's a long way of saying that they need to understand where this is going, right? Because the mother of all questions that, 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 that you know, everybody's asking is, okay, the U.S. talks about decoupling and de-risking and diversification, but like where does the integrated economy stop and the decoupled economy start? And absent any ability to sort of define that boundary, um, you know, businesses are kind of, you know, you know, left with no choice but to, to, to you know, de-risk themselves, reduce exposure, um, you know, um, acknowledge, you know, risk-averse fiduciary duties, you know, all the things that you would expect them to do. And the challenge with geopolitics when you're talking about commercial activity is you just have very little agency over it, right? You know, so, 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 so businesses are stuck being disproportionately impacted by a set of forces that they can't really influence um, and or certainly can't influence the same way. And so understanding where it's going um, and looking around the corner is like tantamount to any business being able to be successful in the future. And it's very hard to think of a business that's not touched by this in some way, shape or form. And, and, and look, I, th I think it's a reasonable assumption that, that, that the tensions between the two countries are going to continue to go in the wrong direction. Yeah. So um, that's really interesting. Uh, I mean, so, so to sort of kind of explore that a bit further, because I agree with you. I mean, you're starting from a position where these two economies are very interdependent. Um, and so the, in the Cold War, obviously, you know, the Soviet Union and the U.S. were, were not really connected at all economically. Um, so, so if we sort of play that forward, then I guess the, the question, the big question is what are the limits of, of, of de-risking or decoupling? Yep. And yep. How, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. And, and, you know, there is a, there's a Goldman Sachs relevance here, right? Which is, you know, it, look, we, we have clients on, on, you know, both sides of this geopolitical tension adjacent to it everywhere, right? So we get a really interesting 360 view of this. Um, and, you know, what we're hearing from clients is not just help us figure out how to navigate this, but, you know, there's a, there's a demand across the board from businesses around the world to just advocate to turn the temperature down. Um, right. And, um, so the question is what's an appropriate way for a place like Goldman Sachs to advocate, you know, we're not in the business of, 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 you know, playing politics. We're not in the business of taking a political position. So 
where do we Goldman Sachs want to take a position? Let's take supply chains as an example. To the extent that we can have an opinion um, that is driven by the illumination of a shared set of facts around some of these supply chains such that we can bring clarity, that's having, that's having an opinion. We, we have an opinion that it is where we can be helpful in you know, breaking down what these supply chains look like so that there's a shared set of facts around you know, where one could diversify and where it's not possible to diversify. That's a role we try to play. So I'll give you a concrete example recently. So I just you know, put out a, a white paper um, called resource, which I think you're familiar with, called resource realism, the geopolitics of critical minerals. Critical minerals um, and rare earth elements have been identified by the U.S. government as one of the most important supply chains. Why? It's absolutely essential to the energy transition. It's essential to advanced weapon systems. And it's, you know, absolutely essential to all the technology that we use day to day. And the list kind of, the list goes on, right? And so when, when you think about um, how necessary these materials are for just everyday things that, you know, the U.S. is aspirationally trying to do and all of us as people rely on, it's, it's extraordinary, right? And so I understand, so, so I understand the geopolitical aspiration um, that the U.S. has to diversify this because right now the supply chain is so dominantly skewed towards China. The question that, that we ask is, okay, um, where is the tension between those geopolitical aspirations and the economic realities? It's not a political judgment. There, there's, there's factual answers to this. And so we sought out to try to understand that. And what's interesting, you know, you know, at Goldman, one of my observations coming from Alphabet to Goldman that I think has been really exciting is, you know, this firm has an enormous amount of expertise that it's sitting on and amassing just by virtue of doing its day-to-day activities. So in this particular example, we have a great trading business at the firm. We have traders who trade, you know, you know, 50 critical minerals and 17 rare earths elements on a minute by minute basis in every single supply chain. There's a woman, you know, right here in London, a junior trader who, you know, spends all day, every day just trading lithium from Chile, right? So, 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 so think about the knowledge that comes with having a commercial mindset um, around trading these things. They, they understand it really, really well. And then because we have a banking franchise where, you know, we have clients, um, you know, in the U.S., in China, in Asia, in Europe, who are also in this business, we also understand the industry. So you basically, you know, find all of that. You kind of, you know, figure out the different, you know, puzzle and you put the puzzle together. And what you're left with is a story that goes something like this. Um, even if you could diversify just the mining piece of this. So let's say for purposes of argument, lithium, cobalt, graphite, you know, um, you know, you know, all the others, let's, let's say just for purposes of argument, you could, you had them in abundance, um, you know, elsewhere outside of China, which is largely, you know, feasible. There's five other steps in the process that gets you the alloys, um, and the wind turbines and the materials for your phones and the necessary things for, you know, electric vehicles. And those other five steps are, uh, represent one of the dirtiest processes from an ESG perspective the crushing of the minerals, the converting it into certain chemicals, the processing, the refining, um, you know, et cetera. 92% of that supply chain um, for those other five steps is in China. Um, there's only five refineries um, in the entire world outside of China. There's one in Nevada. There's one in Australia. There's one in Malaysia. There's one in Estonia. There's one in France. Um, and I'm spacing right now where, where the other one is. But there's only five of them. 
to open a new one in Canada would take about 50 years. Um, the permitting process is unforgiving um, outside of, of China. Again, that's before you even get to the ESG hurdles. Um, and the demand is not slowing down. You, you need, on average, about um, 200 kilograms of rare earth elements to, to basically make an electric vehicle today. That's roughly six times the amount required for a conventional vehicle. And you look at the numbers doubling by 2030, it's pretty, it's pretty extraordinary. Um, and so, you know, you look at this and you kind of break, why are we sort of breaking this down? Um, because we want there to be no confusion about what this supply chain looks like. And then the politicians will do what the politicians do and whatever happens, happens. But if we can play a role as a firm um, in getting out there to help provide a shared set of facts, we view that as a way to sort of play a meaningful role um, to engage in the, in, in the geopolitics without stepping into um, a political space that is not appropriate for us to step into. No, but it does... Um... I mean, it does create some of the, or at least it exposes some of these tensions, right? So, for example, the, the sort of the whole decarbonization drive transition to electric vehicles, renewable energy, and so forth. Is that possible to do while also trying to, you know, reorganize all these supply chains? I mean, the answer yeah. would be, would seem probably not. But it's one of the great ironies, right? That in order to electrify vehicles, it requires a reliance on a very dirty process from an ESG perspective, um, that process just doesn't, for the most part, happen ex-China, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, that's, that, that's, that's not a judgment one way or the other, it's just a fact of where that part of the supply chain is. So if you look at Iowa as an example, so Iowa, I think 85% of Iowa's electricity relies on wind. Um, um, more than 90% of the materials that go into the storage and the wind turbines come from China, um, right? And so it, it's it's just, it's, it's the reality of these supply chains. And the thing that I think is the most dangerous, everyone, you know, Taiwan gets a lot of the oxygen. Everybody talks about Taiwan and what's going to happen and so forth. Um, to me, the more immediate um, and much more imminent um, threat that could have real economic implications um, around the world, not just the U.S., but, but around the world, um, is uh, a miscalculation where the there's a geopolitical overreach around diversification of supply chains that leads to a backlash um, and a choking of certain supply chains. And next thing you know, um, you know, the, you know ne next thing you know, it's just kind of a, a tit for tat um, economic escalation. And the problem with, you know, economic escalations is, you know, you know, they can lead to other types of escalations. Um, so that's, you know, a, a, again, we're, um, we're very comfortable offering, you know, analysis into this space that we think can help turn the temperature down. And from our perspective, as we've sort of, you know, shared our findings from this with, you know, members of the House Select Committee on China, we published it, you know, publicly, um, you know, what we found is, is across the board, um, nobody seems upset about getting more visibility into what this supply chain looks like. And we feel strongly about doing it. These are, these are facts that anybody in theory could be able to find. We're organizing it in one place and putting it out there and wrapping it in a geopolitical context that makes it kind of di digestible. But we think it's important for these facts to be out there. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. So just to, just to look at it from the other side, because um, obviously there is also the other, the other player in this is the US, uh, which has also been quite aggressive in terms of, you know, restrictions on technology and so forth. And we'll leave aside the, sort of the, the financial sanctions. Um, 
but that's also I mean is that any hard is that any easier to read in terms of in terms of where that goes next it, it, it's in, it depends on the sector in some sectors it's I mean I think in the technology so so I think it's 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 a little more predictable where there's a feeling like it's had some success from the US perspective right so the export controls at the end of October of 2022 on chips um, you know it's interesting when those export controls were put in place nobody was talking about generative AI um, you know it was more of a, a, a they, they were put in place more um, you know uh, based on a US policy decision to um, protect one of the few technological edges that the U.S. had still managed to hold on to, which was semiconductors. Um, and the irony is those export controls have actually had a pretty significant impact on um, China's ability to, to, to um, achieve parity with the U.S. on large language models, right? Because they don't have enough GPUs to, to run these large language models. I mean, they, 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 there's, other, there's other challenges as well in the sense that, you know, by their own admission, they don't want to train at internet scale. Um, the black box nature of these large language models um, are less comfortable and uh, the models themselves are governed in a more tight, tight way. Um, so it's not just the, the chips, but the compute, lack of compute power is, 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 is an issue. Um, but I think this is part of what's causing businesses consternation is, um, you know, I, I think that it's becoming increasingly clear that the rhetoric is going up. Um, there's bipartisan consensus in the U.S. on taking a tougher protectionist position. You see the U.S. Um, you know, pushing harder on Europe to take a more robust protectionist position. I think there'll be a reprieve between now and when Xi Jinping comes for the APEC summit um, in the U.S. Um, but it's highly unpredictable if you're sitting in the private sector, right? Because um, you know, it used to be that you could count. Part of the reason this wasn't an issue before um, even when things were tense between the two countries, is you could count on the economic interests of both countries driving the geopolitics. Um, now, you know, at times it can feel like it's it's actually the geopolitics driving the economic interests. And so, what that means is, you know, what I hear a lot from businesses is, you know, um, it's you know they they talk about how it feels like in service of certain geopolitical goals, both countries are capable of making you know um, economic decisions that are actually not in their own. Interests, and that's just—it's not a formula that, that that businesses are used to. That's not—that's it's a paradigmatic shift that um, you know it just kind of creates a lot of uncertainty. And so there's kind of two. There's the reactive part of this that that I think a lot of businesses are figuring out, which is how do they make sure they don't get caught in the crossfire of that. Um, and you know, I think for any business that that you know had any activity in Russia, like waking up and having to to get out of there to comply with sanctions overnight you know, was the right thing to do both legally and, and morally, but it was still like a wake up call that this can happen. Um, and so that's significant. And then the second is, you know, you're seeing country, you're seeing companies increasingly just kind of ask the question, if this is going to go on for longer, are there parts of the world that are a little more predictable, um, more geopolitically stable that you would kind of bet on over the next decade plus? And that's why I wrote, I wrote another white paper called The Rise of Geopolitical Swing States. And, and, and you know, that's kind of the question that I was trying to answer, which is, which are the geographies that are actually well positioned to benefit from sustained tensions between the US and China because they're needed by both countries? So just give us a few, just a, just briefly a few highlights of, of where are the opportunities in all this? I mean, they're thing. basically countries that <laughs> have some differentiated part of the supply chain that's needed by both the US and China. Um, a differentiated amount of capital and the flexibility and willingness to deploy it as they see fit. 
Um, they're attractive for nearshoring, offshoring, and friendshoring. Um, and they're led by individuals that, you know, have kind of a global vision for their, for their, for their country. And those are not, none of those are mutually exclusive, but, you know, certainly the Gulf countries, you know, um, you know, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE, um, you know, Brazil, India is in a lot of respects, the ultimate geopolitical swing state, um, right. You know, it's, it's a position they're in that has allowed them to actually stay neutral on Ukraine, get what they need from the U S on China while still relying on China for very key parts, um, of their supply chain, like, like pharmaceuticals. Um, you know, but, um, uh, Vietnam surpassed the UK as the U S is think sixth or seventh largest trading partner, um, a year and a half ago, nobody would have thought that was possible. Right. So it's, um, so you're seeing the, these, these geopolitical swing states, you know, th- th- there's an economic moment that they're enjoying with some geopolitical cover and they know it's fleeting, but fleeting could be a decade plus. And, um, you know, they're making moves, right? They're not, this isn't the non-aligned movement, you know, of Tito, you know, gathering everybody in Belgrade, you know, in the former Yugoslavia to create a non-aligned movement. It's, it's not multilateral. You know, it's these countries, you know, are, are, are seeking, you know, they're sort of seizing an economic moment that they see and they're, op- they're kind of going it alone. Um, and again, they're, they're, they're engaged in these sort of ad hoc, you know, alliances and, and so forth, but they're much more multi-aligned than they are, than they are non-aligned. Yep. Um, we could talk for a long time, uh, but I think we're ti- our time is up, so um, we'll have to leave it there. But right. thank you very much for your time, and I uh, hope we can continue this conversation yeah, at anytime. some point in the future. I'm sure I enjoyed it. Lots to talk about. Thanks thank very you. much. All right, thanks. That's the end of this week's show. Thank you for tuning in, and many thanks to my colleague, Oliver Taslich in London, who produced this podcast. You can find more episodes of The Exchange on Megaphone, or whatever your favorite podcast app is, where you will also find our sister podcast, The Views Room. And don't forget to check out our views every day at breakingviews.com. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover to the heart of U.S. politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts.